Section 24 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Ellison. The South Pole by Ruol Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 24, Volume 2, Chapter 11, Through the Mountains, Part 2. Our original intention of starting again as soon as the sledges were ready was abandoned. We did not lose very much by this. On the contrary, we gained on the whole. The dogs, the most important factor of all, had a thorough rest and were well fed. They had undergone a remarkable change since our arrival at the butcher's shop. They now wandered about, fat, sleek, and contented, and their former veracity had completely disappeared. As regards ourselves, a day or two longer made no difference. Our most important article of diet, the pemmican, was practically left untouched. As for the time being, dog had completely taken its place. There was thus no great sign of depression to be noticed when we came back into the tent after finishing our work and had to while away the time. As I went in, I could descry Wisting a little way off kneeling on the ground, and engaged in the manufacture of cutlets. The dogs stood in a ring round him and looked on with interest. The northeast wind whistled and howled, the air was thick with driving snow, and Wisting was not to be envied. But he managed his work well, and we got our dinner as usual. During the evening the wind moderated a little, and went more to the east. We went to sleep with the best hopes for the following day. Saturday, November 25th came. It was a grand day in many respects. I had already seen proofs on several occasions of the kind of men my comrades were, but their conduct that day was such that I shall never forget it, to whatever age I may live. In the course of the night the wind had gone back to the north and increased to a gale. It was blowing and snowing so that, when we came out in the morning, we could not see the sledges. They were half snowed under. The dogs had crept together and protected themselves as well as they could against the blizzard. The temperature was not so very low, minus 16.6 degrees Fahrenheit, but low enough to be disagreeably felt in a storm. We had all taken a turn outside to look at the weather and were sitting on our sleeping bags discussing the poor prospect. It's the devil's own weather here at the butcher's, said one. It looks to me as if it would never get any better. This is the fifth day, and it's blowing worse than ever. We all agreed. There's nothing so bad as lying weather-bound like this, continued another. It takes more out of you than going from morning to night. Personally, I was of the same opinion. One day may be pleasant enough, but two, three, four, and now, as it seemed, five days, no, it was awful. Shall we try it? No sooner was the proposal submitted than it was accepted unanimously and with acclamation. When I think of my four friends on the southern journey, it is the memory of that morning that comes first to my mind. All the qualities that I most admire in a man were clearly shown at that juncture, courage and dauntlessness, without boasting or big words. Amid joking and chaff, everything was packed and then out into the blizzard. It was practically impossible to keep one's eyes open. 
The fine drift snow penetrated everywhere, and at times one had a feeling of being blind. The tent was not only drifted up, but covered with ice, and in taking it down we had to handle it with care, so as not to break it in pieces. The dogs were not much inclined to start, and it took time to get them into their harness, but at last we were ready. One more glance over the camping ground to see that nothing we ought to have with us had been forgotten. The fourteen dogs' carcasses that were left were piled up in a heap, and Hassel's sledge was set up against it as a mark. The spare sets of dog harness, some alpine ropes, and all our crampons for ice work, which we now thought would not be required, were left behind. The last thing to be done was planting a broken ski upright by the side of the depot. It was Wisting who did this, thinking, presumably, that an extra mark would do no harm. That it was a happy thought the future will show. And then we were off. It was a hard pull to begin with, both for men and beasts, as the high Sestrugi continued towards the south and made it extremely difficult to advance. Those who had sledges to drive had to be very attentive and support them so that they did not capsize on the big waves, and we who had no sledges found great difficulty in keeping our feet, as we had nothing to lean against. We went on like this, slowly enough, but the main thing was that we made progress. The ground at first gave one the impression of rising, though not much. The going was extremely heavy. It was like dragging oneself through sand. Meanwhile, the sestrugi grew smaller and smaller, and finally they disappeared altogether, and the surface became quite flat. The going also improved by degrees, for what reason it is difficult to say, as the storm continued unabated, and the drift, now combined with falling snow, was thicker than ever. It was all the driver could do to see his own dogs. The surface, which had become perfectly level, had the appearance at times of sinking. In any case, one would have thought so from the pace of the sledges. Now and again, the dogs would set off suddenly at a gallop. The wind aft, no doubt, helped the pace somewhat, but it alone could not account for the change. I did not like this tendency of the ground to fall away. In my opinion, we ought to have done with anything of that sort after reaching the height at which we were. A slight slope upward, possibly, but down, no, that did not agree with my reckoning. So far the incline had not been so great as to cause uneasiness, but if it seriously began to go downhill, we should have to stop and camp. To run down at a full gallop, blindly and in complete ignorance of the ground, would be madness. We might risk falling into some chasm before we had time to pull up. Hansen, as usual, was driving first. Strictly speaking, I should now have been going in advance, but the uneven surface at the start and the rapid pace afterwards had made it impossible to walk as fast the dogs could pull. I was therefore following by the side of Wisting's sledge and chatting with him. Suddenly I saw Hansen's dogs shoot ahead, and downhill they went at the wildest pace, Wisting after them. I shouted to Hansen to stop, and he succeeded in doing so by twisting his sledge. The others, who were following, stopped when they came up to him. We were in the middle of a fairly steep descent, 
What there might be below was not easy to decide, nor would we try to find out in that weather. Was it possible that we were on our way down through the mountains again? It seemed more probable that we lay on one of the numerous ridges, but we could not be sure of nothing before the weather cleared. We trampled down a place for the tent in the loose snow, and soon got it up. It was not a long day's march that we had done, eleven and three-quarter miles, but we had put an end to our stay at the butcher's shop, and that was a great thing. The boiling point test that evening showed that we were 10,300 feet above the sea, and that we had thus gone down 620 feet from the butchers. We turned in and went to sleep. As soon as it brightened, we should have been ready to jump out and look at the weather. One has to seize every opportunity in these regions. If one neglects to do so, it may mean a long wait and much may be lost. We therefore all slept with one eye open, and we knew well that nothing could happen without our noticing it. At three in the morning the sun cut through the clouds and we through the tent door. To take in the situation was more than the work of a moment. The sun showed as yet like a pat of butter and had not succeeded in dispersing the thick mists. The wind had dropped somewhat but was still fairly strong. This is, after all, the worst part of one's job, turning out of one's good, warm sleeping bag and standing outside for some time in thin clothes, watching the weather. We knew by experience that a gleam like this, a clearing in the weather, might come suddenly, and then one had to be on the spot. The gleam came, it did not last long, but long enough. We lay on the side of the ridge that fell away pretty steeply. The descent on the south was too abrupt, but on the southeast it was better and more gradual, and ended in a wide, level tract. We could see no crevasses or unpleasantness of any kind. It was not very far that we could see, though, only our nearest surroundings. Of the mountains we saw nothing, neither Fritjof Nansen nor Don Pedro Christofferson. Well content with our morning's work, we turned in again and slept till 6 a.m., when we began our morning preparations. The weather, which had somewhat improved during the night, had now broken loose again, and the northeaster was doing all it could. However, it would take more than a storm and snow to stop us now, since we had discovered the nature of our immediate surroundings. If we once got down to the plain, we knew that we could always feel our way on. After putting ample brakes on the sledge runners, we started off downhill in a southeasterly direction. The slight idea of the position that we had been able to get in the morning proved correct. The descent was easy and smooth, and we reached the plain without any adventure. We could now once more set our faces to the south, and in thick driving snow we continued our way into the unknown, with good assistance from the howling northeasterly gale. We now recommenced the erection of beacons which had not been necessary during the ascent. In the course of the forenoon we again passed over a little ridge, the last of them that we encountered. The surface was now fine enough, smooth as a floor, and without a sign of sastrugi. If our progress was nevertheless slow and difficult, this was due to the wretched going, which was real torture to all of us. A sledge journey through the Sahara could not have offered a worse surface to move over, now the forerunners came into their own, 
and from here to the pole, Hassel and I took it in turns to occupy the position. The weather improved in the course of the day, and when we camped in the afternoon it looked quite smiling. The sun came through and gave a delightful warmth after the last few bitter days. It was not yet clear, so that we could see nothing of our surroundings. The distance, according to our three sledge meters, was eighteen and a half miles. Taking the bad going into consideration, we had reason to be well satisfied with it. Our altitude came out at 9,475 feet above the sea, or a drop of 825 feet in the course of the day. This surprised me greatly. What did it mean? Instead of rising gradually, we were going slowly down. Something extraordinary must await us further on, but what? According to dead reckoning, our latitude that evening was 86 degrees south. November 27 did not bring us the desired weather. The night was filled with sharp gusts from the north. The morning came with a slack wind, but accompanied by mist and snowfall. This was abominable. Here we were, advancing over absolutely virgin ground and able to see nothing. The surface remained about the same, possibly rather more undulating. That it had been blowing here at some time, and violently too, was shown by the undersurface, which was composed of sastrugi as hard as iron. Luckily for us, the snowfall of the last few days had filled these up, so as to present a level surface. It was heavy going, though better than on the previous day. As we were advancing, still blindly, and fretting at the persistently thick weather, one of us suddenly called out, Hello, look there! A wild, dark summit rose high out of the mass of fog to the east-southeast. It was not far away. On the contrary, it seemed threateningly near and right over us. We stopped and looked at the imposing sight. But nature did not expose her objects of interest for long. The fog rolled over again, thick, heavy, and dark, and blotted out the view. We knew now that we had to be prepared for surprises. After we had gone about ten miles, the fog again lifted for a moment, and we saw, quite near, a mile or so away, two long, narrow mountain ridges to the west of us, running north and south, and completely covered with snow. These, Helen Hansen's mountains, were the only ones we saw on our right hand during the march on the plateau. They were between 9,000 and 10,000 feet high, and would probably serve as excellent landmarks on the return journey. There was no connection to be traced between these mountains and those lying to the east of them. They gave us the impression of being entirely isolated summits, as we could not make out any lofty ridge running east and west. We continued our course in the constant expectation of finding some surprise or other in our line of route. The air ahead of us was as black as pitch, as though it concealed something. It could not be a storm, or it would have been already upon us. But we went on and on, and nothing came. Our day's march was eighteen and a half miles. I see that my diary for November 28 does not begin very promisingly. Fog, fog, and again fog. Also fine falling snow, which makes the going impossible. Poor beasts, 
They have toiled hard to get the sledges forward today, but the day did not turn out so badly after all. As we worked our way out of this uncertainty and found out what was behind the pitch-dark clouds, during the forenoon the sun came through and thrust aside the fog for a while, and there, to the southeast, not many miles away, lay an immense mountain mass. From this mass, right across our course, ran a great ancient glacier. The sun shone down upon it and showed us a surface full of huge irregularities. On the side nearest to the mountain, these disturbances were such that a hasty glance was enough to show us the impossibility of advancing that way. But right in our line of route, straight on to the glacier, it looked, as far as we could see, as though we could get along. The fog came and went, and we had to take advantage of the clear intervals to get our bearings. It would, no doubt, have been better if we could have halted, set up our tent, and waited for decently clear weather, so that we might survey the ground at our ease and choose the best way. Going forward without an idea of what the ground was like was not very pleasant. But how long should we have to wait for clear weather? That question was unanswerable possibly a week, or even a fortnight, and we had no time for that. Better go straight on, then, and take what might come. What we could see of the glacier appeared to be pretty steep, but it was only between the south and southeast, under the new land, that the fog now and again lifted sufficiently to enable us to see anything. From the south round to the west the fog lay as thick as gruel, we could see that the big crevasses lost themselves in it, and the question of what the glacier looked like on the west had to be put aside for the moment. It was to the south we had to go, and there it was possible to go forward a little way. We continued our march until the ground began to show. It was our intention to lighten our sledges before tackling the glacier. From the little we could see of it, it was plain enough that we should have stiff work. It was therefore important to have as little as possible on the sledges. We set to work at once to build the depot. The snow here was excellent for this purpose, as hard as glass. In a short time, an immense erection of adamantine blocks of snow rose into the air, containing provisions for five men for six days and for eighteen dogs for five days. A number of small articles were also left behind. While we were thus occupied, the fog had been coming and going. Some of the intervals had been quite clear, and had given me a good view of the nearest part of the range. It appeared to be quite isolated, and to consist of four mountains. One of these, Mount Helmer Hansen, lay separated from the rest. The other three, Mounts Oscar Wisting, Severa Hassel, and Olav Bjeiland, lay closer together. Behind this group, the air had been heavy and black the whole time, showing that more land must be concealed there. Suddenly, in one of the brightest intervals, there came a rift in this curtain, and the summits of the colossal mountain mass appeared. Our first impression was that this mountain, Mount Thorvald Nilsen, must be something over 20,000 feet high. It positively took our breath away, so formidable did it appear but it was only a glimpse that we had, and then the fog enclosed it once more. We had succeeded in taking a few meager bearings of the different summits of the nearest group, 
they were not very grand, but better ones were not to be obtained. For that matter, the site of the depot was so well marked by its position under the foot of the glacier that we agreed it would be impossible to miss it. Having finished the edifice, which rose at least six feet into the air, we put one of our black provision cases on top of it, so as to be able to see it still more easily on the way back. An observation we had contrived to take while the work was in progress gave us our latitude as 16 degrees 21 minutes south. This did not agree very well with the latitude of our dead reckoning, 86 degrees 23 minutes south. Meanwhile, the fog again enveloped everything, and a fine, light snow was falling. We had taken a bearing of the line of glacier that was most free of crevasses, and so we moved on again. It was some time before we felt our way up the glacier. The crevasses at its foot were not large, but we had no sooner entered upon the ascent than the fun began. There was something uncanny about this perfectly blind advance among crevasses and chasms on all sides. We examined the compass from time to time and went forward cautiously. Hassel and I went in front on a rope, but that, after all, was not much of a help to our drivers. We naturally glided lightly on our ski over places where the dogs would easily fall through. The lowest part of the glacier was not entirely free from danger, as the crevasses were often rendered quite invisible by a thin overlying layer of snow. In clear weather, it was not so bad to have to cross such a surface, as the effect of light and shade is usually to show up the edges of these insidious pitfalls. But on a day like this, when everything looked alike, one's advance is doubtful. We kept it going, however, by using the utmost caution. Whisting came near to sounding the depth of one of these dangerous crevasses with sledge, dogs and all, as the bridge he was about to cross gave way. Thanks to his presence of mind and a lightning-like movement, some would call it luck, he managed to save himself. In this way, we worked up about 200 feet, but then we came upon such a labyrinth of yawning chasms and open abysses that we could not move. There was nothing to be done but to find the least disturbed spot and set the tent there. As soon as this was done, Hansen and I set out to explore. We were roped and therefore safe enough. It required some study to find a way out of the trap we had run ourselves into. Towards the group of mountains last described, which now lay to the east of us, it had sufficiently cleared to give us a fairly good view of the appearance of the glacier in that direction. What we had seen before at a distance was now confirmed. The part extending to the mountains was so ground up and broken that there was positively not a spot where one could set one's foot. It looked as if a battle had been fought here, and the ammunition had been great blocks of ice. They lay pell-mell, one on top of another, in all directions, and evoked a picture of violent confusion. Thank God we were not here while this was going on, I thought to myself, as I stood looking out over this battlefield. It must have been a spectacle like doomsday, and not on a small scale either. To advance in that direction, then, was hopeless, but that was no great matter, since our way was to the south. On the south we could see nothing, 
The fog lay thick and heavy there. All we could do was try to make our way on, and we therefore crept southward. On leaving our tent, we had first to cross a comparatively narrow snow bridge, and then go along a ridge or saddle raised by pressure, with wide open crevasses on both sides. This ridge led us on to an ice wave about 25 feet high, a formation which was due to the pressure having ceased before the wave had been forced to break and form hummocks. We saw well enough that this would be a difficult place to pass with sledges and dogs, but in default of anything better, it would have to be done. From the top of this wave formation, we could see down on the other side, which had hitherto been hidden from us. The fog prevented our seeing far, but the immediate surroundings were enough to convince us that with caution we could beat up farther. From the height on which we stood, every precaution would be required to avoid going down on the other side. For there the wave ended in an open crevasse, specially adapted to receive any drivers, sledges, or dogs that might make a slip. The trip that Hansen and I took to the south was made entirely at random, as we saw absolutely nothing. Our object was to make tracks for the following day's journey. The language we used about the glacier as we went was not altogether complimentary. We had endless tacking and turning to get on. To go one yard forward, I am sure we had to go at least ten to one side. Can anyone be surprised that we called it the Devil's Glacier? At any rate, our companions acknowledged the justness of the name with ringing acclamations when we told them of it. At Hell's Gate, Hansen and I halted. This was a very remarkable formation. The glacier had here formed a long ridge about twenty feet high. Then, in the middle of this ridge, a fissure had opened, making a gateway about six feet wide. This formation, like everything else on the glacier, was obviously very old and for the most part filled with snow. From this point the glacier, as far as our view extended to the south, looked better and better. We therefore turned round and followed our tracks in the comforting conviction that we managed to get on. Our companions were no less pleased with the news we brought of our prospects. Our altitude that evening was 8,650 feet above the sea. That is to say, at the foot of the glacier, we had reached an altitude of 8,450 feet, or a drop from the butchers of 2,570 feet. We now knew very well that we should have this ascent to make again, perhaps even more, and this idea did not arouse any particular enthusiasm. In my diary, I see that I conclude the day with the following words. What will the next surprise be, I wonder? It was, in fact, an extraordinary journey that we were undertaking, through new regions, new mountains, glaciers, and so on, without being able to see. That we were prepared for surprises was quite natural. What I liked least about this feeling one's way forward in the dark was that it could be difficult, very difficult indeed, to recognize the ground again on the way back. But with this glacier lying straight across our line of route, and with the numerous beacons we had erected, we assured ourselves on this score. It would take a good deal to make us miss them on return. The point for us, of course, 
was to find our descent to the barrier again. A mistake there might be serious enough. And it will appear later in this narrative that my fear of our not being able to recognize the way was not entirely groundless. The beacons we had put up came to our aid, and for our final success we owe a deep debt of gratitude to our prudence and thoughtfulness in adopting this expedient. Next morning, November 29, brought considerably clearer weather and allowed us a very good survey of our position. We could now see that the two mountain ranges uniting in 86 degrees south were continued in a mighty chain running to the southeast, with summits from 10,000 to 15,000 feet. Mount Thorvald Nilsen was the most southerly we could see from this point. Mounts Hansen, Wisting, the island, and Hassel formed, as we had thought the day before, a group by themselves, and lay separated from the main ridge. The drivers had a warm morning's work. They had to drive with great circumspection and patience to grapple with the kind of ground we had before us. A slight mistake might be enough to send both sledge and dogs with lightning rapidity into the next world. It took, nevertheless, a remarkably short time to cover the distance we had explored on the previous evening. Before we knew it, we were at Hell's Gate. Bjaland took an excellent photograph here, which gives a very good idea of the difficulties this part of the journey presented. In the foreground, below the high snow ridge that forms one side of a very wide but partly filled up crevasse, the marks of ski can be seen in the snow. This was the photographer who, in passing over this snow bridge, struck his ski into it to try the strength of the support. Close to the tracks can be seen an open piece of the crevasse. It is a pale blue at the top, but ends in the deepest black, in a bottomless abyss. The photographer got over the bridge and back with a whole skin, but there could be no question of risking sledges and dogs on it, and it can be seen in the photograph that the sledges have been turned right around to try another way. The two small black figures in the distance on the right are Hassel and I, who are reconnoitering ahead. It was no very great distance that we put behind us that day, nine and a quarter miles in a straight line, but, taking into account all the turns and circuits we had been compelled to make, it was not so short after all. We set our tent on a good, solid foundation and were well pleased with the day's work. The altitude was 8,960 feet above the sea. The sun was now in the west and shining directly upon the huge mountain masses. It was a fairy landscape in blue and white, red and black, a play of colors that defies description. Clear as it now appeared to be, one could understand that the weather was not all that could be wished. For the southeastern end of Mount Thorvald Nilsen lost itself in a dark, impenetrable cloud which led one to suspect a continuation in that direction, though one could not be certain. Mount Nilsen, ah, anything more beautiful, taking it all together, I have never seen. Peaks of the most varied forms rose high into the air, partly covered with driving clouds. Some were sharp, but most were long and rounded. Here and there one saw bright, shining glaciers plunging wildly down the steep sides and merging into the underlying ground in fearful confusion. 
But the most remarkable of them all was Mount Helmer Hansen. Its top was as round as the bottom of a bowl, and covered by an extraordinary ice sheet, which was so broken up and disturbed that the blocks of ice bristled in every direction like the quills of a porcupine. It glittered and burned in the sunlight, a glorious spectacle. There could be only one such mountain in the world, and as a landmark it was priceless. We knew that we could not mistake that, however the surroundings might appear on the return journey, when possibly the conditions of lighting might be altogether different. End of section 24 Recording by Richard Ellison